Lord, we just thank you for the last couple of days that we've had with this amazing husband and wife, man and woman, your son and your daughter. And Lord, we thank you for an opportunity this morning to hear what you've put on your heart for us through them this morning. And we just pray for your abiding presence. Would they know your touch within them and upon the words they speak? And Lord, would you give us, your people, receptive and open hearts to hear what you're saying to us this morning? And Lord, I just pray for a real sense of refreshment, even now as they've given out over the past couple of days. And Lord, as they minister this morning, would they know your presence ministering to them and through them this morning? We pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Bless you guys. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's great to be here this morning and to look around the room and recognize some faces because you were here yesterday and Friday, so that's really good. And if you weren't here, it's great to meet you as well this morning. As Andrew said, Linda and I are Brits. Um, we are ex-Kiwis, I guess. We've kind of lived there for about 15 years on and off, but really we're British. And uh, so can I apologize now? You know, so, you know, yeah, on either count, being Kiwi or Brit, you know. It's great to be here in Canberra. It's our first time over here in Canberra, and so we're excited just to see and get the feel of a little bit of the place. I've decided we'll have to come back sometime, and uh, that would be good. Our connections with uh, Australia are, are getting stronger all the time because our youngest daughter, she left the UK, oh goodness, 15, 16 years ago, having married a Kiwi guy. And they moved to New Zealand, and after seven years, they saw sense and moved to Australia. And um, they, he's in the police up in Queensland. I, I gather that's not quite Australia, is that right? <laughs> so, I, I'm, I've only found out that this weekend. I'm looking forward to informing them when I see them. Um, uh, anyway, we're heading up that way uh, today, and we've got a week with them in the hard, difficult life on the Sunshine Coast. My daughter's a lecturer at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and I thought, how can anyone take that seriously? <laughs> so it's, it's great to have this connection with you. And we're, Linda and I are part of a ministry called Father Heart Ministries, which is uh, a worldwide ministry now. When we started to get involved 10 years ago, it was very much um, significantly based in New Zealand, but it's spread around the world. And our, our role in Father Heart Ministries takes us all over the world, and in the last eight years, we've just been living out of suitcases, really, and uh, having the time of our lives. Um, my plan, as I got older, was to try and follow the sun around the world, the S-U-N, okay, so that we were in perpetual summer. And mostly that works. <laughs> we, we came back over this way in, in November, but we leave next Sunday and arrive on Monday in England again. Where we live there at the moment, it's uh, four, minus four last night, so whoop-de-doo. <laughs> but not as bad as where you two are going, Canada, I ask you. Anyway, um, it's great to, to be here, and, it, and it's been lovely this weekend just to share uh, with you folks on, on this whole theme of God being our Father. And uh, I, I want to just kind of pick up one, two things this morning along that line and, and just open the Scriptures up, because one of the things that, that I've really been excited about as I've kind of delved into this whole revelation that God is our Father, is just how significant it is that Jesus revealed God as a Father to us. You know, many people hear people talking about, oh, the Father, heart of God, and all the rest of it. And, and often they say, aren't you neglecting Jesus? You know, isn't it all about Jesus? Well, after a while, people realize that's not the case at all, because we couldn't know the Father without Jesus. You know, everything that Jesus ever said pointed to his Father, and, and the revelation that he came to bring was to show us what the Father was like, because he, of all people, knew what God was like as a Father. He was the eternal Son of God, beloved by his Father. You know, we, we talked yesterday about that moment when Jesus was baptized, and he stands in the water in the River Jordan, and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and the Father speaks and says, you are my beloved Son, and I'm so proud of you. 
You know, the relationship between Jesus and his Father was intimate. It was vital and real. They de- Jesus depended on the Father for everything. And, and he gathered a group of people around him, which we call disciples, who, who he just poured into them everything that the Father gave him. Now, I was really quite surprised when, when I looked into this that Jesus continually said, you know, the things I say to you, I only say what I hear my Father saying. I haven't even got my own theology. The th- words I speak are my Father's words to you. The things I do are the things I see my Father doing. That was quite a shock for me when I, when I realized that. I mean, my background is I trained at a, sounds very grand, a theological college. It, it wasn't quite that boring as it sounds, but in the UK, I trained as a Baptist minister, and, and we studied the scriptures, we studied the gospels, and it never really struck me just how much Jesus talked about his father. You know, you often don't see these things until revelation comes, but once you've seen it, <laughs> you can't unsee it. You know, it, it leaps out of the page. And, and as I look through how Jesus gathered this group of disciples around them, he spent the three brief years just talking all the time about his dad, telling them what God was like as a father and how he was going to be a father to them as well. Now, when you think about the disciples, I guess you think about the 12 disciples. You know, if you've ever traveled up to Europe... Um, in the old cathedrals of Europe, you see the pictures of the disciples in stained glass windows and on paintings, and, and they're a bit stereotypical. They usually look old, um, they've usually got beards, and they have this big gold disc around their head. You know, they kind of, that's the clue who they are. And you know, they, they usually look a bit otherworldly. They're looking up here or something. And, and we can think disciples are these kind of vague group of men eventually become apostles and you know we know about the disciples but when you dig a little bit deeper in the gospels you begin to see that yes there were the 12 as they're called but there was a much wider group and it wasn't just men it was women as well so this group of people who gathered around Jesus men and women together he was teaching them and pouring into them what he knew about the father And, and the women we know some of their names The uh, gospel writer Luke, who was probably Greek, was quite interested in in the fact that women were in part of the story too. And that in itself is extraordinary. Because writings from the first century never mention women unless they happen to be a queen or an empress or something. Ordinary women never got a mention. But Luke, in his gospel, particularly tells us stories of where Jesus was working and speaking with women. And we get a list of their names, these women. There was a Joanna, a Susanna, Mary Magdalene, you've heard of her, I'm sure, another Mary, and another Mary, and, oh, and another Mary. It seems like, you know, everybody else is called Mary. <laughs> and, and they're in the group. And what it says about these women was that they supported Jesus and the disciples in their ministries. The women paid for it. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, that they kind of provided meals and hospitality. I don't know what else, but they were there. You know, it was to the women, first of all, that went to the tomb on Resurrection Day. The first person who encounters the risen Jesus is Mary Magdalene. The early church gave her a title quite early on called the Apostle to the Apostles. Now, that's fun. Anyway, these are the sort of people that Jesus had in his wider group of friends. And he spent time with them. And he encouraged them. And they're just ordinary people. You know, they actually didn't go around with gold discs on their head. They didn't do that. They didn't look vague and, you know, spiritual. They were ordinary people. They were a mixture of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. We know details about them. But I've often wondered what, you know, what was their lives like? You know, what did they think when this guy, Jesus, turns up and asks them to kind of follow him and be one of his group? Something quite remarkable went on when that happened. I mean, one of them was a guy who sat in the local tax office. He was a tax collector, which, you know, these days is a reasonably respectable job. Um, in those days, it was a dreadful job because tax collectors were employed by the Romans who were the occupying power. So if you worked as a tax collector for the Romans, everyone else thought you were on the wrong side. 
The Romans were quite smart. They said, oh, yeah, we're not going to pay you, of course. You just take your cut from the taxes you collect. Now, how would you feel about that if you're paying your money to someone who is the same race as you and he's taking a cut of your money? It meant there was a huge dynamic going on there. Most people didn't like tax collectors. And Jesus turns up to a tax collector called Matthew and says, Hi, Matthew. Come, come follow me. What was it about Jesus that made that man stand up and without hesitation follow him? There must have been something about this incredible man. So they're, they're with him for three years, and, and he tells them everything he knows about the Father. Now, in John's Gospel, from chapters 13 to 17, we read about the last evening that Jesus spent with them. We call it the Last Supper because we know how the story unfolds. The disciples didn't know it was the Last Supper. They're just going to celebrate the Passover with Jesus. Even though Jesus had given them pretty clear direction that things were coming to a head and that he was about to be arrested, they still didn't quite get it. So when they all gather together in the upper room, he's got this group of disciples around him, and he's really trying to summarize so much of what he's taught them over three years. And, you know, these guys, you'd have thought after three years, they would have really got it. I mean, you'd have got it, wouldn't you? If you'd have had three years hanging out with Jesus... Well, Luke tells us when they arrive for dinner, for the Passover, two of them have an argument about who's the greatest and who's more important. After three years, they're still worrying, you know, I want to sit next to Jesus. You know, you always sit next to Jesus. It's my turn. There was an argument. See, the, the stuff going on in these disciples that probably we can identify with. I mean, you've never had an argument about that have you you know what do you mean you're going to dinner with the pastor again you know we, we can think like that sometimes these were ordinary people with stuff in their lives and Jesus begins to unfold what's going to happen the first thing he says to them he says well one of you is about to betray me this is dinner right this is not dinner time conversation one of you is about to betray me and they all look at each other and say, what? What's going on? Who's going to betray him? Is it you? Are you going to do it? Is it me? I mean, these guys are confused. I mean, wouldn't you be? It's a shocking thing to say. And, of course, we know Judas, one of the disciples, does betray Jesus. But they don't kind of make the connection at that point. And Peter says, well, you know, even if everyone abandons you, I'm never going to do that. Jesus kind of looks at him with a look and says, you know, Peter, before dawn, before the cock crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. No, I won't. I won't ever do that. You know, because Peter's that sort of character, isn't he? They're interesting, these people. And they're asking questions. Jesus is saying things, and they're getting to the point where they realize, we don't get it, Jesus. You're always talking about your father. Philip says, if you could just show us the Father, that would be great. You know, we, he, we know he's your Father, but where is he? Jesus looks him, Philip, how long have you been with me? Haven't you, hasn't it dawned on you yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I'm the exact representation of the Father. All right, you know, and so the questions go on. It's questions all night. Finally, Jesus says something very significant. This is John chapter 15, verse uh, 9. I need my glasses. No, it's, yeah, verse 9. John 15, verse 9. He says to these disciples, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, at that point, there are no questions. Nobody says, what do you mean? How? What, what are you talking about? Nobody says that. Because every single one of them knew exactly what he meant. They had felt it in some way. They'd experienced being loved by Jesus. And he said, I'm loving you in exactly the same way as the Father is loving me. In one sense, you know, Jesus is 
being like a father to those boys. He's pouring love into them. And I've, I've wondered, what does love look like? You know, how do you know if someone loves you? I guess all of us, hopefully, at some point, have been in that place when we've been loved by someone. And how do you know it? What are the clues that we look for? I mean, books have been written about love languages and all that sort of thing. And yeah, that's all very valid. But how do you know if someone loves you? Often it's a look in the eye, isn't it? Sometimes it's the way they touch you. Sometimes it's in the words that they speak. You know, what? one of the four loves that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about, which we find in, in people, is that there's, there's God's love, agape love, there's eros, the sexual love between husbands and wives, there's another one called filio, which is brotherly, affectionate love between friends, brothers. There's a fourth one, which is called storge, which is the affectionate love of a parent to a child. That, that mothers and fathers pour into their children. And that's characterized by the look in the eye, the touch, the tone of voice. I mean, you see a mother holding a newborn. What's she doing? She's right up close, up against the breast often, with about 18 inches, whatever that is, centimeters, between the eyes of the child. And the child can only just about focus that far. And, and the mother's looking into and Fathers do it too, and looking into the eyes of that child. And the eyes say it all, don't they? And the gentleness of the touch. You know, a child who doesn't get that touch is damaged. You know, if a child doesn't have appropriate, loving, affectionate touch, in some ways we, we, our, our body doesn't develop properly. And, of course, there's a tone of voice. And, you know, how do we talk to new babies? Hello, baby, how are you? Don't think it's like that. Even the toughest of men go dopey, don't they? <laughs> this is the guy that's just won the National Rugby League, whatever it is, you know. You're just so... Because it's the voice, it's the touch. We know what love feels like. But that's babies. But what about with other people, with, with, with older people? In many ways, those sort of things are still there. We recognize that we're loved by the way people talk to us, the way they look at us, the things they do and say. And Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, in the same way as I have loved you. You know, one of the biggest ways we experience being loved is when the words, the voice, and the touch to us is reaching out to us in moments when we're in need, when we're wounded, when we're lonely. And it comes to us in a very comforting way. See, just a little bit earlier in the evening, Jesus said to his disciples, you know, I'm not going to leave you abandoned like orphans. I will come to you. You're not going to be like orphan children. And he'd said a few moments before, he said, I'm going to give you another comforter or another counselor, another comforter who will be with you forever, talking about the Holy Spirit. But he said, I'm going to give you another comforter which means someone had been comforting them already. Now, this is Sunday school, right? Who do you think that was? <laughs> Jesus. You know, it's always Jesus, the answer in Sunday school, isn't it? <laughs> Who built the ark? Jesus. No, no, not wrong story. But he had been a comforter to them already. And he said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to give you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you forever. You see, the love that Jesus was pouring into them, that he received from God the Father, had a lot to do with comfort. It was poured into his disciples, this group of men and women, who, uh, like us, had stuff going on in their lives where they needed to be comforted. See, if you've had things happen to you and you are not comforted, you feel terrible. Where, where there's pain in our hearts, we need comfort to be poured into us to help us through that pain. And when we're not loved, we feel comfortless. So all these things are linked there. And Jesus is very practical. He says, in the same way as the Father has loved me, so I'm loving you. Well, I've wondered how he did that. What did he, what 
did he do? Do we get clues? Do we see in the scriptures ways that Jesus is comforting those disciples? And, you know, why did they need it? What was there about these men and women that showed that they needed comfort? Surely, you know, gold disc, you know, saints and all the rest of it. No, actually, ordinary men and women. Many of them were quite young. I don't know what age you think the disciples were. You know, they lived in an age when if you reach 40, you're quite old. <laughs> Some of you may think 40 is still old. <laughs> Some of us, however, <laughs> are way beyond, think it's really barely out of nappies. You know. Probably the disciples mostly were under the age of 20. Now, the reason we could say that is there is a story where Peter comes to Jesus on one occasion and talks about paying the temple tax. And you remember Jesus says, well, have you got any money? And Peter says, no. He said, well, go fishing. Peter goes fishing, catches a fish, and amazingly, the fish has a coin in its mouth, and it says that's enough for you and me, Peter, to pay the temple tax. Now, the point of that is only people over the age of 20 needed to pay the temple tax. Now, most scholars think that probably the disciples were younger than that. So we're kind of in the teenage realm, which, of course, way back then, you were quite mature. People got married much younger in those days. I mean, Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably early teens when she married Joseph. So a different world. But these were younger people. And, you know, of course, nobody under the age of 20 has any issues, do they? Trying to find someone under the age of 20. The reality is, I mean, all of my stuff mostly happened before I was 20, that I spent the next 45 years trying to sort out and deal with. Most of, most of our stuff happens when we're young. The pain that we take on board often is as children. The issues that happen to us, maybe we're abandoned or left alone, maybe don't have parents. It could have been anything. I don't know. But these disciples were young men and women who grew up in a world that's not hugely different from ours, facing the same sort of challenges. And in the midst of all this, as now these disciples of Jesus, he's saying to them, as the fathers love me, so I'm loving you. You know, they were people who needed comfort. They needed to be loved. You know, one of the worst things about growing up and getting mature is that you think you don't need that. I've grown up, I'm over that. But actually the reality is, unless you have been comforted with the love of God in your heart, you're not going to be healed. <laughs> we need him to touch those wounded areas. And of course, part of growing up is we think, oh, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. Now, I'm sure all of you Australians have lost your stiff upper lips. But we Brits still have them, okay? I think they kind of got washed away on the boats, didn't they? But we can play the game of I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm sure I've been a Christian for 45 years. I'm fine, thank you very much. But, you know, the reality is for many of us, there's still deep wounds in our hearts that only God can meet. Jesus spent time loving his disciples. So let's have a look at them briefly. I mean, the, some of the famous ones, James and John, the brothers, remember their job? Fishermen. They worked with their mum and dad, who was called Zebedee, and his mother's name, their mother's name was Salome. Salome was Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, right? So that makes them cousins of Jesus, right? They knew the guy. They probably grew up with him. And they're in the group, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus actually gives them a nickname. He calls them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, does that give you a bit of a clue to what they were like? To me, it sounds like a motorbike gang, you know? Sons of thunder over their backs. You know, they probably had it tattooed in their shoulder. You know. And is there evidence that they were like that? Well, yes, there is. You see, on one occasion, Jesus and his disciples are walking back to Galilee through Samaria, which is a non-Jewish area. And they stop in a town, and the town doesn't receive them. So the sons of thunder have the solution. Jesus, cool down fire! Burn them! You know, let us deal with them. You know, these are young men on a mission. You know, sometimes you think one of them, John, the one who Jesus loved, who's leaning on Jesus' shoulder or whatever at the Last Supper, you think he's a bit limp and, you know, 
wussy. They're the sons of thunder. They've got stuff going on. And their mum, of course, Salome, who is Auntie Sally to Jesus, right? <laughs> she has a plan for the boys. See, they've joined the gang, and they all know that they're going to go to Jerusalem. And the word is that Jesus is the king, and he's going to be setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem. So Auntie Sally comes to Jesus and says, Excuse me, Jesus, can I have a little word? Over here. Um, When you get to Jerusalem, can my James sit on your left and my John sit on your right? I mean, after all, we're our family. She's not some random woman. She's Auntie Sally. So Jesus says to her, oh, yeah, okay. So can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Now, we know the story, so we know what he's talking about, the cup of suffering. But maybe Auntie Sally was thinking about, oh, yeah. I remember we went to the wedding, didn't we? (gasps) Jesus turned the water into, yes, we can do the cup. (laughs) Jesus turned water into wine. We can do that cup, Jesus. I don't know whether she thought that, but her experience, she'd seen Jesus do amazing things, and they didn't quite get it, what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Interesting enough, some of the other disciples were really annoyed about this. <laughs> are you surprised? They've been overlooked. Who do they think they are? Just because they're relatives. See, there's stuff going on here. Yeah, someone like Peter. Now, he's a character, isn't he? His first name, well, he's called Simon to start with. He eventually gets called Peter. He's in business with James and John. He and his brother Andrew are fishermen in Galilee, and they're in business. Andrew, his brother, had gone off earlier, gone down to the River Jordan, heard John the Baptist speak, came back home and says to Simon, his brother, I found the Messiah. And I kind of imagine Peter saying, oh, good, another one. You know, there were lots Jewish writer Josephus tells us lots of people claim to be the Messiah. You know, Peter's into fishing. Andrew, another Messiah, whatever. And he's fishing up on the lake. And then one day, this Jesus comes walking along by the seashore, stops by Peter's boat. Maybe Andrew says, he's here. It's him. He's coming. And Jesus says to Simon, can I use your boat? Yeah. Yeah. What do you want to use it for? Oh, I just want to use it to speak to the people. So he stands in the boat, stands on the seashore, and preaches to the people. And Peter's standing there, my boat. <laughs> Notice, my boat. And uh, Jesus says, great, does the preaching. says, so let's go fishing, shall we? Uh, no, says Simon. Wrong time of the day. We've been fishing all night. It's not the time to go fishing, right? Uh, you carpenter from Nazareth, me fisherman from Galilee. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, no, let's just go fishing. Okay, if you say so, that's what he said. We'll go fishing. So out they go in the boat, and Jesus says, um, put your net over the side. No, we've been fishing all night. They're not catch, we're not catch anything. But if you say so. Now, I don't know whether he had that tone of voice. But the evidence is that Jesus puts, tells them to do it, Simon puts the net in the boat over the side and gets the biggest catch of fish he's ever seen, pulls it to the shore and gets out the boat and says to Jesus, leave me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You know, something had been going on there under the surface, and Jesus says, come on, come follow me. A little while later, Simon joins the crowd. And Simon's the sort of character, he, he's, he's loud, he's got, always got something to say. You read the stories where Simon appears, Simon Peter, and he's always got something to say. It feels like at times he's like the life and soul of the party. You know, you know people like that? They walk into the room and everybody knows they're there. You know some people like that, don't you? You might be sitting next to one. <laughs> Simon's very much like that. And, you know, it's great, he's... He begins to, you get the feel that he's a bit, okay, let's do it this way, guys. Come with me, we're following Jesus, right? Get in line, come on. Well, on one occasion, Jesus says to the boys, so um, what are people saying about me? Who, who do people say that I am? And Jesus' answer is, uh, the, the, the disciples' answer is, well, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And Jesus says, no, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And Simon immediately jumps in. It's like he's saying, I'll say it before anyone else says something stupid. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Absolutely spot on. And Jesus says, whoa, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. You can imagine Simon going, <laughs> yeah. I got revelation. Jesus said, from now on, I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. Because this statement, this rock that you said, is going to be what it's all about. Peter, you hear that, boys? From now on, just call me rock, okay? <laughs> and they begin to walk off down the road. And it tells us that just a little further on, Jesus begins to explain to the boys that I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested and crucified and killed, and on the third day, rise from the dead. So rock immediately says, okay, stop right there. I'm not having you talk like this, Jesus. This is not good for morale, you know. We are boys. We will help you. We won't let that happen to you. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Rock becomes a grain of sand. You see, he's, one minute he's here. The next minute he's here. I mean, I'm never going to deny you. Even this lot might, but I won't. Three hours later. That's kind of how it goes with poor old Simon. In the high priest's courtyard, after the arrest of Jesus in the garden, Peter's there. You know, the others have run away, but Peter is still there. And, and you know, they, where's Jesus? And there's this little servant girl comes up and says, I know you. You're one of his disciples. No, I'm not. <laughs> Never heard of it. Don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you are. You've got a Galilean accent. I have not. And so on. Because the third time, it's bleep, 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 bleep. Just as Jesus said would happen. Simon has now crashed again. Matthew tells us that at that moment, Jesus was taken through the courtyard. And it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, what sort of look did he give him? Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That look would have been of absolute love for that broken man. Because Peter, for all his bravado, for all his words, for all his promises, had completely failed. And Jesus looked at him. Now, after the resurrection, we find ourselves back up on Lake Galilee, and the boys are out fishing, and, and They've seen Jesus. He's risen from the dead. They've met him once or twice, but there's not been that moment with Peter to put things right. He was there in the group. But here in Lake Galilee again, they're out on the lake fishing all night, catching nothing. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they're getting towards the shore, and they see a fire burning on the beach. And a voice comes across the water. Got any fish, boys? No, we've been fishing all night. I haven't caught a thing. We'll put the net over the other side of the boat. You can imagine the disciples saying, we've heard that before. It's him. It's him. And it says Peter's so excited, he jumps out of the boat. He's naked and he leaves his clothes behind and gets to the shore, stands there dripping in front of the fire. And there's Jesus just across the fire looking at him like he did in the high priest's courtyard across the fire. Shall we have breakfast, says Jesus. Can you get some fish, Peter? Yeah, yeah, get some fish. He rushes to the boat, drags in a great net full of fish. You know, three or four would have been fine, all right? Because <laughs> Peter has to do the extra. And they sit there. And Jesus says, so Peter, do you love me? You know, it's such a moment, isn't it? This is the man who completely failed. That for all his bravado said he never would, did. And Jesus restores him lovingly, accepting the level of love that Peter can give him. He says, now, Horn, I want you to become a shepherd. No more fishing for you. Feed my sheep. See, the way Jesus deals with these disciples is in the midst of their distress and their failures, he's loving them. 
He's pouring Father's love into their hearts. And you know what that does for me? That makes me feel so at home. You know, I've had some spectacular failures in my life over the years. And he's treated me exactly the same. He's poured love into my heart. Because he loves us in the way the Father loves us. The women are interesting. The girls, you know, some of them. Remember the, the Bethany sisters? It's not a singing group. Mary and Martha. <laughs> they live in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, with their brother Lazarus. Regular place that Jesus visited. You know, they, they were part of the group. When, when, when Lazarus got sick, the girls sent messages to Jesus, and he came, and you know, remember the story, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Mary and Martha figure quite highly in the group. On one occasion, Luke tells us that Jesus turned up to Martha's house and uh, goes in for dinner. Well, you know, wherever Jesus goes, he's got 12 hungry young men in tow, teenagers mostly, with appetites appropriate for that. You can imagine knocking on the door, Martha comes to the door, oh, hey, Jesus, lovely to see you again. Come in, stay for lunch. Okay, 13 extra for lunch. Plus the three of them, that's 16 for dinner. Martha then has got, Jesus has come to my house for dinner. So it's got to be the best. I've got to do it for Jesus. And she goes into super efficient, over-the-top mode in the kitchen. She is preparing a banquet for Jesus. And, you know, where's Sister Mary? No sign of her. She's in the room with Jesus the Twelve sitting at Jesus' feet. Can you imagine the testosterone levels in that room? My goodness, Mary's there with all these young men. But she's listening to Jesus, drinking it all in. However, in the kitchen, there is major issues brewing. I mean, guys, you know the sound, don't you, of issues in the kitchen? You hear the level of saucepan pan banging, don't you? You know, kind of. You know when something is going on in the kitchen. You know, there's choices have to be made at that point. You know, we men. It's well, anyway. You can choose your own response to that. But Martha's getting pretty upset because you know I'm doing this for Jesus. I'm serving him, and nobody's helping me. You know, I've been at every prayer meeting and. Uh, no one notices. You know that kind of feeling? This is what's going on. And where's my sister when you want her? So she decides she's going to go and sort it out. And she marches into the sitting room looking for Mary. And there, of course, is Mary, who is just lapping up everything Jesus has to say. So what does Martha do? Does she quietly go into the lounge and says, Mary, dear, could you possibly come and help me in the kitchen? I'm a little bit busy. No. She doesn't do that. She doesn't even talk to Mary. She goes up to Jesus and says, Oi, Jesus, look at it. Tell her to come and help me. I mean, it's as if it's his problem. You know. What's going on here? You know. So what does Jesus do? How dare you talk to me like that? I'm the master. No. Just looks at her. So, oh, Martha, Martha. It's not, oh, Martha, Martha. Oh, Martha, one dish would have been fine. You didn't need to do a banquet. Mary's actually chosen something really special that should never be taken away from her. See, even in all her busyness for him and her desire to get it right and blowing it all publicly and having a go at Jesus, oh, Martha. See, these are the sort of people that are his disciples. Jesus loves them. He's pouring the Father's love into their hearts. And that makes me feel so happy because they're people just like us. And he's loving us in exactly the same way, in our issues, in the stuff that's been us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to look us in the eye like he did Peter. He wants to speak words of acceptance and love to us. You know, he knows our names. He knows what we like to be called. You know, one of the saddest things I ever heard was about Queen Victoria, you know. When her husband, Prince Albert, died, she wrote in her diary, there's no one left to call me Vicky. You know, what sadness was there. She knew what she wanted to be called. 
Jesus knows what we like to be called. He knows us that intimately. And he speaks love into us as he speaks our name. He, you know, love is communicated by touch as well. Jesus touched people. He healed people with a touch. He touched the untouchable lepers, people that, that most people shunned and, and kept away from. He'd reach out and touch them with his hand. And the healing touch of his heart was poured into them. And just think of the acceptance that that touch brings. See, Jesus loves to love us in the way that he's been loved by the Father. He wants to father us. There's just one other disciple I want to mention briefly. And that's a very interesting character. He's called Simon the Terrorist. Did you know that Jesus had a terrorist in his group? Simon the Zealot, right? You've heard of Simon the Zealot? A zealot was a first century terrorist. They were the guys who rose up to try and get the Romans out of Israel. The Romans were occupying power. As always happens when one country invades another, younger people particularly become the freedom fighters, don't they? You know, we call them freedom fighters. The occupying power calls them terrorists. And eventually they all become politicians. So, you know, that's how it works. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're a super billionaire businessman, and that's a different story. <coughs> no, I won't go there. Um, but Simon the terrorist, Simon the zealot, was one of Jesus' disciples. I mean, did Jesus not read his CV? What's he doing getting a guy like that in the group? I mean, the, the, the zealots hated Romans. They wanted to kill every single one of them. The only good Roman, as far as they were concerned, was a dead Roman. They had a special knife called a sicari, which had a curved blade, which was perfect for slitting throats from behind. And that's what they'd do. Get a Roman down a dark alley, and you're a hero. Except, of course, it doesn't work like that, does it? Because occupying powers tend to um, take reprisals against the local population, which is exactly what they did in those days. And so if people killed Romans, local villages and towns suffered as a result. So the zealots switched their attention. Got an Australian fly, excuse me. They switched their attention to the people who worked for the Romans, their own people who worked for the Romans, because they were traitors in their mind, like tax collectors. You imagine the day with the disciples when Jesus turns up and says, hey, boys, I want to introduce you to a new disciple. This is Matthew, the tax collector. You can think Simon the Zealot saying, do I get to do it now? Can I stick him now? No, Simon, he's, he's one of us. You don't expect me to talk to a tax collector. What will my other friends think of me? Even worse, Matthew invited everyone to dinner that night, and they all went to Matthew's house for dinner. I can imagine Simon the Zealots, I'm not going in there. I can't. After what the Romans have done to us, who do you think I am? Well, what have the Romans done to him? I don't know. But what radicalizes young men and women? What turns young men and women into freedom fighters stroke terrorists? Usually, they've seen something pretty horrific. They've experienced something terrible. And I can't answer whether Simon had, but I do know, because we read about it in writings from Josephus at the same time, that a town in Galilee, about 10 kilometers north of Nazareth, about 15 years before Jesus began his ministry, the Romans took reprisals in that town. The whole town was burnt to the ground. All the men were crucified, every man over the age of 12, about 2,000 of them. All the women, well, you can imagine what happened to them before they were sold as slaves. If that happens in your area, you know how you feel about things. Maybe Simon had relatives in that town. Maybe he was one of them who lived there and wasn't at home at the time. I don't know. But when something deeply traumatizing happens to us, it leaves a gaping wound in our heart. And if it's not healed and comforted and loved, we express it in all sorts of different ways. And so he would make a perfect zealot. He'd take great delight in attacking the Romans. So he joins this band, and then Jesus teaches them and says things like, if a Roman soldier comes along and asks you to carry his bag a mile... You can imagine Simon saying, <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> I get to take him down an alley, right? No, carry it two miles. You can't be serious, Jesus. After what they do? How do you expect us to do that to them? Jesus told them a story once about forgiving people. A story about a king who forgave a servant an inordinate amount of money. And Jesus said, that's how I want you to be. I want you to forgive people from your heart. I can imagine Simon the Zealot saying, I can't do that. You can't expect me to forgive Romans after all they've done to us. This is too much, Jesus. This version of your love, it's not realistic. But it's the way of being a disciple of Jesus. It's a way of walking in the love of the Father. I don't know what happened. I can imagine maybe Jesus walking along by the seashore, maybe putting his arm around Simon, saying, you know, if you, if you want to, I can help you. Let me love you so you can love them. I don't know. But what I do know is this. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, who's there? In the list, right in the middle, Simon the Zealot. Early church tells us, the story of the church tells us that Simon the Zealot took the gospel all along the North African coast, which was full of Romans. So something deeply changed his heart. And I think the clue is, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. See, the love of God as a father is poured into Jesus. Jesus pours that love into our hearts. The Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts in order to transform us by that love, to comfort us, to reach the deepest place of wounding in our heart in order to transform us. Because love the love of God poured into our hearts is transformational. It will transform individuals. You know, there's a lot of talk in church life these days around the world about transformation of communities. That's wonderful. You know, what's really going to transform communities is people like you and me being filled with the love of the Father. And as we are personally transformed by love, reaching out to the one in front of us, some of you have heard of Heidi Baker in Mozambique. How do you love all those children? I love the one in front of me. See, Father's love is being poured into our hearts. As we sit here this morning, we wouldn't be in church otherwise, would we? Why are we here except to encounter Father, to encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit, to meet Jesus? And what are they doing? They're loving on us, healing us, pouring love into our deepest painful places in order that we can go out those doors and give it away in love. Paul, when he's writing in 2 Corinthians to the church there, he said, you know, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. When we open our hearts to him, and allow him to touch us in that deepest place and receive his comforting love into our hearts. It transforms everything. The way we look at people, the look in your eye will be the love of the Father looking out through you. The reach of your hand to that person in need, you'll be touching them as if the Father himself were touching them. The way you speak to people, to the neighbors, to the boss, the people in school, wherever you are, will be carrying the very words of the Father himself. And love will be imparted. Because love's real. It's stuff. It's not some philosophical idea. It's real in the hearts of God's sons and daughters. So I don't know where you're at this morning, where there's things happening in your life. Chances are for 99.999% of us, Stuff's going on and the other person's in denial. <laughs> We've all got issues. Father's dealing with us. So right now, just open your heart to Father. Just let him come to you afresh. Maybe you've never really known him as a father in that way, but he wants to be a father to you. 
He says that, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. Jesus invites us to come home to our Father. The Holy Spirit wants to pour the love of the Father into our hearts. So let him touch you at whatever level you're at at the moment. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever issues you're facing in these days, just allow Father to touch it. Father, right now I pray that you'll move all across this, this gathering of your sons and daughters, these beloved children of yours. And Father, in each of our circumstances, thank you that you're coming to us with your glorious, rich love, touching us in our woundedness, in our brokenness, in our offenses, in the places where we're angry and upset and disappointed, you're coming to us. In those places where we feel lonely, you're coming to us to be the lover of our souls. Thank you that you never fail. Your love doesn't run out. Your love never fails, as we've sung today. It comes to every one of us. Father, we we receive your love. We drink in your love. As we took bread and wine that speaks of your, your sacrifice on the cross, we receive it as your loving gift to us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. You're so good. Amen. Well, I know this church has a, a prayer team. And I guess if you guys on the prayer team will be available afterwards. If, if you want to talk to someone, if Father's done something and you just want to have prayer specifically, one of the team here I'm sure will be able just to bless what Father's doing in you. But as for me, I think I'm done, Andrew. (laughs) Thank you. Why don't we just stand as we bring the service to a close? If you would like prayer, you're very welcome to do, to come forward, and there will be a prayer team. And are you available as well, Trevor, to stay and minister to people? to bless whatever the Lord is doing. So don't feel like you need to rush away. If you want to do that, you're very welcome to come forward. Let me just pray a prayer of blessing upon us as we go forth into this week. Lord, we thank you that you have been here amongst us. Lord, we thank you for all that you have been doing and you will continue to do, for you are our faithful Father. And Lord, would you go with us into all the things that are before us this week, ever drawing us closer to your heart, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.